listening to Shakespeare and Contemporary Theory with Nima Parvini. I've sometimes joked that there is no such thing as a Shakespearean spoiler. But what would Hamlet be like if we didn't already know what was going to happen? What would the play look like if we only knew what Hamlet knew? This is partly the topic of Amir Khan's book, Shakespeare in Hindsight, Counterfactual Thinking and Shakespearean Tragedy. Amir is Assistant Professor of English at Missouri State University, currently seconded at Liaoning Normal University in China. This interview was recorded last year, but a few weeks back I had the pleasure of sharing a drink or two with Amir at the Shakespeare Association of America's annual meeting in stormy Atlanta. And a very nice chap he is too. Some of the panels there were recorded, including a couple of sessions with former guests of this show, such as Karen Raber, who was on the uh, Queer Natures panel, and Josna Singh, who spoke on the colour of membership. I've included links in the show notes. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of Shakespeare and Contemporary Theory. My guest this week is Amir Khan. How are you doing, Amir? I'm doing great. How are you, Nima? Very good, and I will just get straight into my uh, first question, which, as ever, is what was the intellectual climate like at the start of your career, and how do you think it has changed between then and now? Yes, right, okay. Started my career. Um, uh, I guess I did mention this before. Um, yeah, I was listening to um, one of your podcasts, earlier podcasts with uh, David Hawks. He was talking about um, identity politics um, during his time, I think, when he was an undergraduate and also in grad school, I suppose. But I think he was talking a little bit about sort of the turn of, you know, late 80s to 90s, the entrenchment of identity politics, I think, is, is kind of what he was talking about. Anyhow, um, by the time I got uh, to be an undergrad, um, 1999, so turn of the century sort of thing. Uh, and then, of course, I started grad school in 2005. Yes, I would say uh, it, it was definitely entrenched and it was definitely prevalent. Um, lots of critiques of all kinds of works, um, not just like in English studies or in English literature based on, you know, gender and race and these sorts of things were prevalent. But um, yeah, I think by the time that I got into um, uh, school, you know, we, we would always have these sort of broad introductory courses where, where we would be given sort of a smorgasbord of uh, intellectual ideas to consider and to think about. And then uh, we would be asked to kind of assess the validity of certain sort of ways of looking at the world, for example, you know, um, psychoanalysis, uh, let's say on Monday, you know, so you would learn um, how well or how convincing, you know, as a, as, a, as a theory, you know, that can be and how, how it can help you look at the world or even read text in certain ways. But then um, what I found was, yeah, um, you know, you, you might even learn something like that on Monday, but then by Friday, like in the same week, you, you've also learned about its shortcomings and then you sort of move on to the next theory or the next sort of theoretical sort of trappings of um, whatever um, certain discourse, um, yep. you know, that, that is kind of um, next up, next next on the, on, on the roster sort of thing. And I think that what that sort of bread was, I mean, at least for me, what I felt, I felt a little bit um, dissatisfied with this because um, what it taught me or what I felt, you know, uh, at the end of, uh, you know, going through some of these courses. And again, I'm not even just talking about English. I remember there was a political science course, you know, that I took. Uh, same kind of idea, you know, feminism one week, Marxism the next week, um, liberal realism uh, the week after, or whatever. 
is that um, what a student ends up feeling, or why, what I ended up feeling, is that you can be very excited about ideas and about um, what these certain um, uh, prisms of thought sort of allow you to see and allow you to, you know, of course, when, when you can see some things, you can't see other things. But um, you, you're always reminded of the limitations of whatever prism you've been looking. So what happens is, I think, at the end of all of that, uh, you sort of learn that it is not wise to kind of have any sort of conviction or any sort of belief or to take sort of one, um, you know, theoretical sort of school of thought and run with it. Um, you just kind of have to, you can only go so far and then you kind of have to pull back and then uh, take the sort of broad academic objective view over all of them all at once uh, and then sort of go from there. And I found, I mean, in many ways, I think this was kind of the climate. So the climate was kind of one of... Yeah, nobody really, um, nobody really had any sort of. Um, there was kind of this residual faith in identity politics. Like I guess, like I, uh, my understanding of sort of when identity politics was sort of um, hot, I guess, like in, in the late '80s and the '90s, was that you know if we look at uh, these texts or if we read these texts in these ways, you know, it will help us sort of shed light on some of these kind of debates. Um, and and we'll ultimately be getting somewhere. But I think by the time, yeah, I got in, in, into um, university nobody really we kind of were just going through the motions nobody really believed anymore that um you know that we're really going to get anywhere you know and all i can do and again this kind of seems it kind of makes a type of sense right like let's just present all of the ideas in this very disinterested fashion and you know it's like a like a marketplace or like a boutique uh and then you choose uh whichever one you like and what but nobody was ever sort of uh, armed with the ability to how do i choose which one it is that I like. I mean, uh, what's really going on here? I mean, is it just sort of um, kind of like an academic faddishness? Like, this is kind of what's hot and what people are talking about right now, so you should try this one and then maybe try another one another week. Um, so that type of, uh, I think that type of lack of uh, conviction in sort of um, what it is that we were doing, um, that was kind of the intellectual climate that, that I sort of perceived, and, and I think that uh, a lot of my work was trying to respond to. So we have all these different theories, but we kind of understand that taking the aggregate, the theories, all of them together are not really getting us anywhere. Okay, well, why don't we turn to your uh, work now, uh, Amir? You uh, recently sure. pu- published a book called, it was called Shakespeare in Hindsight with, uh, with Edinburgh yep. uh, University Press. And uh, I, I would like to ask you first, uh, what is counterfactual thinking? Okay. Um, counterfactual thinking is just, it's a sort of a fancy sounding term for something that's really very simple. It's just the posing of sort of what if questions as a means of sort of reading the plays um, to begin with. So, um, yeah, so it's actually very simple, like... Um, Ask, opposing alternatives, imagining, let's say, alternative endings to tragedies in particular, uh, I think is sort of a useful pedagogical uh, tool, and it's a it's a very useful way to sort of begin to talk about the text. So, for example, you know, like what if Hamlet and Laertes had not switched the rapiers? You know, what what would have what what kind of play would we have then? Um, what if Desdemona had produced the handkerchief? <clears throat> you know. Um, would we still have sort of a tragedy or could, could her tragic fate have been avoided? Um, these kinds of things. Now, obviously, you know, there's two ways you can answer that question. Um, Desdemona, for example, you know, if she had produced her handkerchief, uh, you know, would we have gotten a happy ending? I mean, you could, 
one way to answer that question would be to say something like, um, well, whatever the tragedy of Othello is, um, it has something surely to do with um, Othello's jealousy. Uh, even if uh, something like, you know, his tragic trait or tragic flaw, even if those terms seem a bit outdated, we can't, we certainly can't deny the fact that Othello being jealous had something to do with the horrible ending that we get. But then if you say something like, <clears throat> what if Desdemona had produced an handkerchief with the tragedy have been avoided, you know, the easy answer might be, well, no, Othello's, you know, he's just jealous. And if it wasn't, if it hadn't coalesced around that, you know, his jealousy and his anger would have coalesced maybe around something else. You know, the play would have just naturally worked its way to the kind of the conclusion that we inevitably get, which is a horrible, tragic conclusion. And of course, the other way that you can answer it is to say, yes, of course, of course, the tragedy could have been avoided if only she had produced the handkerchief. And I think what that if you answer it in in, in sort of a, in an honest way, um, to me, uh, or if you at least give it some thought that yes, you know, this whole crisis could have been averted just by matter of you know this fluke, you know, just uh, if Desdemona just had that handkerchief, um, what you're doing is you're kind of you're shifting uh, how it is that you perceive tragedy. Tragedy is no longer something; it's no longer a matter of inner necessity, like something inner to Othello like a tragic flaw or jealousy, you are actually uh, shifting sort of the um, emphasis towards outer, a single fleeting outer contingency. And that in itself, you know, leads to this sort of maybe critical helplessness, you know, like how do we, how do you explain something that is just so frighteningly contingent? Uh, and I think that that is important to sort of occupy that headspace only because that has something to do, I think, with, how we perceive tragedy and the, the type of feeling that I think we're supposed to feel when we read these tragedies. So, you know, part of what I go on to say in my book is that <clears throat> oftentimes explanation or hindsight creates, yes, certainly like something, you know, like a bias of hindsight, but it also creates this, uh, uh, it also creates, um, we, we tend to sort of explain tragedy away, you know, with the benefit of hindsight. We, we almost want to make it necessary. We want to make it explainable. But by virtue of doing that, by virtue of explaining it, um, yeah, we, we are no longer occupying sort of um, – we're no longer uh, open to or no longer able to perceive, you know, like the tragic effect. And the tragic effect has something to do with – you know, the frightening contingency of events um, that sort of in a way defy explanation. And I think we forget that in our haste and our zeal to explain you know, the necessary sort of steps that led to the tragedy. And once we do that, uh, we're no longer able to perceive it correctly. So kind of factual thinking is kind of an invitation to um, open up our imaginations once again to this sense of uh, awe and wonder at, um, at the contingency uh, of events. Now, now, can I ask, uh, I mean, some, I, I'm thinking back to L.C. Knight's uh, rebuke of A.C. Bradley, you know, when he he uh, he mocked Bradley for asking how many children hath uh, Lady Macbeth. Right. Um, and, I mean, part of uh, Knight's charge there was that in looking for things outside of the text, uh, you know, why is Bradley doing that? We should only really consider what is there itself in the text and i wonder um if knights would make a similar charge about your uh, about counterfactual thinking you know by consider like what's the point of considering alternatives when it's not there in the text what, what would you say to that sort of charge 
uh, from a, a theoretical night? Sure, um, that's a very fair question. Um, yes, um, counterfactual thinking. I mean, obviously, I suppose uh, um, at first glance it seems like yes. Now suddenly, everything that uh, we can talk about uh, that there's too much. At, um, there's almost like an abundance of significance if we want to say that everything that didn't happen and could have happened is now worth talking about. Uh, we just have um, too much on our hands. Um, yes, and that we should actually pay attention to, like Knights would say, as you're suggesting, uh, you know, what is sort of in the text uh, before us immediately. Um, like the only thing that I would say to that is, and I talk about this, of course, in the book, is um, explanation is sort of based on considering alternatives and not alternatives like the goal of counterfactual, you know, posing a counterfactual sort of um, reading of a play is not to arrive at a definitive counterfactual reading, you know, like, oh, if this had happened, this would have been would have necessarily been the case. Actually, all it is designed to do is to help us better understand, you know, the play that we have right before us, like immediately before us. So part of, you know, my answer to Knights there would be something like, um, you know, like um, any any counterfactual condition, any counterfactual that you sort of pose or a counterfactual question that you ask would have to have some kind of textual justification um, before you pose it. I mean, there has to be like a good reason um, to pose the question in the first place. So, um, for example, um, you know, uh, Macbeth uh, in his, uh, you know, just after he's named Thane of Cawdor, he says, um, if chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stir. So that to me immediately, and that is based on something that is immediately before us, like in the text, and that to me sort of highlights uh, the fact that it has crossed Macbeth's mind that it would be better for him to actually not do anything at all um, and simply sort of just uh, uh, passively wait for the uh, witch's prophecy to sort of uh, take hold for him to become king. And of course, there's all kinds of ways that this could happen. Um, you know, uh, Malcolm, um, you know, and Duncan, you know, could just maybe fall ill and die, uh, you know, and, and, and the steps towards the throne, you know, would be just kind of, would just kind of open up to him. Of course, we wouldn't have a very good play or a very good drama. But um, the point is that um, this is a possibility that Macbeth has considered. And for whatever reason, um, he doesn't he uh, he denies it or he, he, he doesn't follow through on it. Um, so part of uh, posing the counterfactual, which is like, what if Macbeth had chosen not to act? Um, what that uh, sort of, what that, um, I guess, uh, I'm hoping uh, will sort of make readers of the play consider or think about is whether or not, um, you know, or why is it? Uh, if he is aware of the possibility that he shouldn't act, why is it then he, that he does act? Um, and I think that's a profitable question to um, pose, and that's sort of the question I try and answer uh, in my reading of Macbeth. And you, and you could argue that the contingency is put there by by Shakespeare himself. I mean, Shakespeare puts puts the possibility of Macbeth not acting into the play itself for right. us to consider that. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess what you're saying is that it does derive in some way from the testing. The, the sure. Testing yes. yes. 
Um, Otherwise, one one of the other interesting things um, that that you do in this book um, is considering the hindsight part, which is right. basically what what the audience knows that the characters don't know. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm thinking in particular of your uh, reading of Hamlet, where you where you seem to argue that Hamlet's not really procrastinating if you actually look at the if you actually look at the world through his eyes rather than through the audience's privileged position. Can you say a bit more about that? Oh sure, yes. Um, yeah. So my uh, reading of Hamlet. Um, yeah, not only like if we look at it through Hamlet's eyes, but we look at it through, you know, uh, basically anybody in the world of the play, if we look at it through their eyes, you know, and sort of the knowledge that anybody in the world of the play has access to versus the knowledge that we have access to exclusively um, outside of any knowledge that anybody in the play um, has. And this revolves uh, squarely around Claudius's confession. <clears throat> So, yes, um, like you say, um, and Claudius's confession, um, I think, has you know, major implications on how we read the delay. Uh, the delay, of course, is a sort of event in Western literature, of course, as I don't need to tell you here, um, has been sort of uh, talked about and discussed uh, many, many times over. And many, many explanations have come up for why Hamlet uh, delays in killing Claudius. But, um, yes, with my reading... Um, I sort of take pains to isolate the fact that it's quite conceivable and quite possible that the delay is actually not um, an example. It's not a delay at all, and it's not actually any type of procrastination that um, is worth condemning. Now, how is this the case? Uh, I mean, I, I, I can lay it out a bit here for you. Um, so, of course, um, Hamlet begins, and uh, he's given this sort of speculative story about what happened to his father. Uh, and it, it isn't like he immediately, right away, just believes everything that the ghost says and then uh, goes and does the deed. And at that point, we as readers, when we're watching Hamlet, we don't exactly think, like, is Hamlet delaying right from the opening act? Uh, I mean, should he act uh, immediately after he's heard the story? Um, should he act and, you know, kill the king right away? I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody would be would be arguing as much. I mean, it's not, so it's not a delay. Um, Hamlet is not procrastinating when he says, uh, you know, I'm going to sort of um, catch the conscience of the king and test the ghost's theory um, by putting on this play within the play. I mean, no, nobody, uh, that is not where the delay happens. I mean, so at, at that point, he's just sort of kind of showing this sort of prudence and common sense that, um, we would expect anybody to do. I mean, if somebody just told you, hey, you know, um, uh, I need you to go murder uh, the king um, because, you know, he he killed me and, um, you know, he married my wife. I mean, you would have no reason uh, right off the bat to believe this is true. You would obviously want to test it. You would want to verify it. Can I ask you a, a fun kind yes. of ca uh, factual here? If you can imagine sure. um, either Othello or Macbeth in that same situation, do you think they would have gone and killed Claudius there and then? <laughs> I think, uh, who makes this argument? Is that what uh, Bradley says? No, 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 no. I, I, it's just some, something I'm uh, asking right now, really. Something that's just come up. I, I, ah, this is very interesting. Yes, intertextual counterfactuals. Okay, well, there's another book there, I think. Okay, yeah. Yes, it's something I'll have to give some thought to, Nima. Mm. But, uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Othello, quite a rash, rash person. <laughs> anyway, but Hamlet is not. 
yes, Hamlet is not a rash person. So he's going to test what uh, what is um, what this ghost has said by putting on this play within the play. Great, that's good, that's great. The audience is, we are all going along with him. We're not saying he's delaying. We're saying, hey, yeah, this is a good idea. You know, you should actually test to see. You know, so what? So what Hamlet obviously plans to do is he puts on a little mini representation of the play. And he assumes, of course, that if when Claudius sees this play, he's going to see the past representation of a crime that he supposedly committed that was told to Hamlet by the ghost. And then, of course, he will rise. So now, so if up until so then the question, the real question really becomes, when do we believe when does the delay become a delay? So he's not delaying when uh, he doesn't know for because he doesn't know for certain. So he's not delaying and putting on the play within the play. The delay only becomes a problem when he knows for certain. That's when he knows for certain that Claudius actually killed uh, the king, uh, the, the previous king. When he knows for certain, then it is, it is on that knowledge that he has to act immediately. <clears throat> but he, so, so, so we really have to ask ourselves, when is it that Hamlet knows for certain? Now, of course, the easy answer is that he knows as soon as the king rises. Um, in uh, Act Three, uh, Scene Two, um, after you know he puts on the play within the play. But now, a uh, curious thing, of course, um, we all know of um, uh, Grieg's essay in 1917 called Hamlet's Hallucination. Um, it's a very important paper, I think, um, uh, for my allowing me to make the argument that that I make. Uh, so basically, he says that you know what? Quite frankly. Um, when Claudius rises, it is not the smoking gun that Hamlet thinks it is. So, and we as viewing audience kind of in hindsight have the ability to sort of see why it's not the smoking gun. And the reason it's not the smoking gun is because Hamlet sort of sullies the experiment. Yes, he kind of has uh, what we take to be sort of a king character in the orchard. Uh, and then what we assume is a brother character in this kind of a uh, uh, dumb show or argument so of course the the dumb show precedes the actual play within the play renamed by hamlet the mousetrap so the dumb in the dumb show of course there's no words nothing is verbalized all we see is a mini representation of a man in an orchard and a little um you know a little uh, uh you know somebody coming into that orchard and pouring poison into his ears and then sort of vamoosing and now the question is after seeing that representation of the crime, why doesn't Claudius rise immediately? Because he did, he doesn't rise. So, you know, then there's obviously some uh, debate about whether or not he is actually distracted or whether or not he was actually viewing the dumb show. Because if he actually saw it, he should be, he should rise right away. But he doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just set aside for now whether or not he actually saw it. But let, and and move uh, more clearly to the um, the actual play within the play itself. And the play within the play. Um, what happens is, uh, of course, um, Hamlet reiterates uh, to Claudius that, hey, do you see what's going on here? Uh, you see that character down there? That, that, that character is Lucianus. And Lucianus is the nephew to that king character. And, of course, Lucianus is the one who pours poison into the king character's ear. So, I mean, it becomes very clear to Grieg that, you know, why um, Claudius rises the second time is not because he's seeing the past representation of a crime that he supposedly committed as told to Hamlet by the ghost, but because he sees the future possibility of Hamlet, his nephew, taking his life. So what Hamlet has effectively staged here is, you know, 
the <laughs> the design he has on the throne um his desire to want to kill his uncle. And of course he rises. He rises because he feels like his life is threatened. And how does Hamlet interpret this? Of course, Hamlet says, no, this means that what the ghost told me was right, but what the ghost told you was something else. He he, he, he told you a story where, of course, and Claudius murders his brother. Yes, okay, so Grieg, of course, Grieg cannot say something like, um, he can't say something like uh, everything that the ghost says was wrong because we know for a fact that the ghost was telling the truth because we know uh, that Claudius actually did murder his brother. Um, and but the, the, the when we know it is really what counts. So Hamlet thinks that he knows it when he sees the king rise. But of course, Greek reminds us that we have no good reason to believe that when the king that the king rises for the reason Hamlet thinks he rises. He rises for a different reason. He thinks that Hamlet is possibly going to murder him. So we actually, as a viewing audience, don't have any verifiable proof that what the ghost said is actually true. Like, we, we still actually don't have it. And if we are careful and um, sort of, you know, if we kind of um, think about it a little bit, we understand that Hamlet has been a little bit hasty. He's been a little bit hasty in assigning, in, in believing that the ghost is absolutely correct simply by saying uh, Claudius rise when he rises. Now, what happens next, of course, is really key. Um, so we move from 3.2, which is the dumb show and the player, and, and the play within the play, to immediately after that, um, Claudius retires to his chambers. Uh, and then we see him confessing. Now, of course, Claudius confesses to absolutely nobody, uh, except he is the only, he is sort of the only audience to himself. And of course, we as the viewing audience are privy to that information. And once he confesses, that is the first time in the play that we actually know for certain that he killed his brother, because we have no evidence prior to that to believe uh, or to suspect, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I mean, that uh, Claudius has actually murdered um, his brother. So the only time that the delay actually becomes a problem is when we know for certain that Claudius actually is guilty. But when do we know for certain? We don't actually know it when Hamlet knows it. So Hamlet knows it at a different time than we know it. But we can also say that Hamlet, in knowing it when he does, you know, when Claudius rises, uh, actually, um, Hamlet has, has actually acted hastily and he doesn't have the smoking gun that, that you know, we, he craves. Yeah. yeah, he's jumped to a conclusion and, uh, you know, but... The, the thing about hindsight is that once we get Claudius's confession, we kind of understand that now we kind of read back to Hamlet jumping to conclusion. Oh, actually, Hamlet jumped to the right conclusion. But the only reason we're saying that now is because we have been privy to a confession where Claudius, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, has admitted, you know, yes, I did. it. I killed my brother. And now now we can sort of make in hindsight, we can make the problem. The problem of a delay becomes a real problem, even though uh, the delay uh, to us, we only perceive it as a delay because we know for certain that Claudius is guilty. And of course, Hamlet has not heard this confession. Um, he uh, and then he, of course, he sees Claudius there and then you know, he raises the dagger. And then, you know, he, he says, um, I'm not going to. Well, I mean, and then, of course, th that is the delay. But if we imagine the play and this is sort of what my reading of the play sort of uh, that's the counterfactual that I, I, I pose 
you know, what if we were to read the play without Claudius's confession? What if? Uh, what kind of play would we have then? And of course, uh, it seems very apparent to me that if we don't have Claudius's confession, nowhere in the play do we get absolute verification of what the ghost has said as being true at all. And that is the world of the play, actually, that Hamlet inhabits. So even if even if we say Hamlet was very hasty in coming to the conclusion that he did after seeing um, Claudius rise, he never acts on that knowledge. He never actually, you know, so like we would almost watch the delay, which we, you know, we wouldn't call it delay anymore, but we would almost watch it and kind of uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, whatever is going on here, Hamlet actually acted correctly because he did not act on this knowledge that even if he says, I'll take the ghost word for a thousand pound, he never does anything uh, on that knowledge. He never actually kills Claudius uh, based on that knowledge alone. What he ends up killing Claudius, of course, in the final act is based on the very apparent crimes that he has committed and which is uh, clear to everybody. Uh, that is obviously the attempted murder of the crown prince, the poisoning of Gertrude, and uh, you know the inadvertent murder of Laertes. So those crimes are very apparent. And then it becomes very easy for Hamlet, obviously, to do the deed because uh, – he has a smoking gun, but for a different crime, or for different crimes, as we say. Uh, he, he kills Claudius not for the reasons that we want him to kill Claudius. And really, my, what my reading tries to show is that by the time we get to the end of the play, um, there is no way that the court, or that Hamlet, or anybody at court, will be able ever to verify the fact that Claudius did murder his brother. That kind of knowledge is actually put beyond reach for anybody uh, in the world of the play. And I think uh, that uh, adds kind of a sort of a frightening sense of contingency to the play that really, you know, makes its tragedy uh, particularly resonant. You know, the idea that uh, flagrant crimes of state can be committed uh, and that they can go not uh, unaddressed or uh, not, they can go you know, unredressed, but the fact that they can be, that they can never be known you know, that they're put beyond sort of reach, uh, you know, and not just kind of uh, not beyond reach in the sense that, you know, we lack kind of, um, uh, you know, we are uh, trapped in a kind of a finite understanding of the world. And this is some infinite knowledge that we don't have access to. No, I mean, that's not the case at all. This is uh, about an infinite ability, in, an infinite inability to access a type of finite knowledge that we believe we ought to have access to, but which that which the play, Hamlet, actually refuses us. Okay, well, um, that's all uh, fascinating, Amir. I I think um, this is a good point to ask you. How does counterfactual thinking help to move us beyond the paradigms of new historicism and cultural materialism or or just plain old historicism, you know, any form of historicism, um, do you do you think that this way of reading moves us beyond those paradigms that have been dominant for the past uh, thirty or forty years? Um, like, I think counterfactual thinking is a way of formulating a subjective response to the text in the present without recourse to um, historicism, meaning like um, without recourse to discussing necessarily or right off the bat the historical realities in which the play was bred. Um, and it also sort of sidesteps kind of the cultural materialist sort of uh, critique, which is to um, 
almost historicized present-day conditions or to be well aware of the present-day conditions and contingencies that are affecting our reading of the text uh, to bring those to light, but uh, uh, necessarily to kind of um, subordinate, I think, um, Shakespeare's text to these kind of present-day contingent needs. So I guess basically what I'm saying is that counterfactual thinking is a strategy um, that I sort of uh, would hope would allow students, um, you know, and teachers and professors alike to sort of formulate a subjective response to the text uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be dressed in, um, you know, uh, historical realities or historical goings-on of a time gone by. And it doesn't necessarily have to, right off the bat, situate ourselves in sort of the present conditions of, um, you know, social, uh, economic, or political. Um, it, it is a way of saying that the text itself can mean and can have meaning just by carrying out this very simple exercise by saying, you know, what if this, um, how would you react to that? Uh, and, and that is, I think, and I'm hoping, um, one way uh, counterfactual thinking can sort of help move us beyond um, sort of knowing the answers that we are want to look, for, knowing the answers in advance, knowing the answers that we want to see, um, you know, applying sort of a ready-made uh, taxonomy that actually comes from elsewhere um, to Shakespeare's text in, a, in an attempt to mine, mine it for meaning, rather than using that kind of a strategy, um, counterfactual thinking, yes, wants to put sort of the text in the lead. So you have to kind of pose counterfactual, have a clearly stated, clearly articulated sort of subjective response. And then from there, uh, hopefully that adds a bit more precision to some of the things that we are saying, you know, concerning whatever it may be, identity politics or what have you. I mean, li listening to you talk through, um, you know, the, whether, the question of whether or not Hamlet delays um, and also his decision-making process, um, it seems to me that, I mean, far from trying to move us... Uh, you know, ask questions that aren't there in the text. It's, it's actually a, a very fine-tuned way of thinking about what actually happens in the text itself. It seems to be a, a kind of hyper-aware or hyper-precise way of um, looking at the text. You know, uh, would you would you agree with that uh, characterization of, uh, of of what you're uh, doing in that book? Like, I think yes. The, like, I, I I definitely would. Like, this is. It is kind of like a hyper-realized um, type of skepticism. I mean, the idea is that, yes, you just bring – there are so many assumptions, of course, uh, that we bring to the text that we are not aware of. You know, And I think you know, when we use, you know, let, let's say, certain theories, um, you know, whatever they may be, to, to read the text uh, – we are assuming that if we are armed with these sort of theoretical precepts, um, we can um, yeah, we'll never sort of be exposed as um, reading something, uh, as having the text read, or as making the text. Okay, uh, sorry, Nima, that's no good. I don't like that answer. Um, <laughs> okay, <you're stuck. laughs> yeah, can I start again? Let me try that again. There's this noise going on outside. Here. Okay. Right. Sorry. Yes, let's try that again. Sure. Okay, well, just just pretend though. I asked the question. What was the question again? <laughs> yeah, the question was uh, uh, precision. Um, yes. So just pretend I've said that, and you can uh, start from there. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think uh, counterfactual thinking is, um, yeah, like it, it's certainly first of all, yes, it's 
it is a way of analyzing um, and, and discovering some of the um, preconceived notions and biases that we bring to the text that for that we cannot know in advance, you know, and I think this is kind of why we're attracted to theory. Theory kind of um, says, you know, hey, these are some of the shortcomings in the ways that we've read in the past, and if we read text in the future this way, um, we can avoid those shortcomings sort of not once and for all, but at least moving forward, we can avoid uh, making those sort of shortcomings. But I think, you know, the way to read text sort of honestly uh, uh, and forthrightly, I think, um, is to be open to the question, uh, is to be open to the understanding that, you know, we carry biases and um, uh, we carry biases and um, sort of, you know, uh, things that we, um, uh, uh, biases and um we carry what's the word I want? We carry biases and we carry sort of uh, prejudgments, you know, uh, and prejudices, kind of in a way, um, of these texts, um, you know, before we come to these texts, and that it, it is imperative that we uh, find a reading strategy that allows us to uncover these things, to discover the things that we didn't know that we know. I mean, I can, I can just give one uh, quick example here um, of King Lear. So, you know, the reading that I do of King Lear. Um, basically poses the question, you know, what if we didn't know uh, that Regan and Goneril uh, were so, you know, evil and that Cordelia is basically like there's a virtuous, you know, that she is kind of the moral center of the play. Like, what if we didn't know going into the play that generic, that, well, not generically, but what if we didn't know going into the play that these characters um, are going to turn out the way that they turned out? You know, so how do you read these plays, you know, a play like King Lear for the first time? And basically in my reading of King Lear, um, and I use North Fry, you know, who can, who has a North Fry's reading of King Lear. And he says, like, if, if you actually read the first two acts of King Lear, you'll see that Shakespeare is kind of setting up our sympathies in the opposite direction. It's Cordelia's uh, outbursts and Cordelia's speech that we should be really suspicious of, whereas Regan and Goneril are just saying what they're supposed to say. Like, they're just like, th there's no reason uh, that we, we, we should think that they are, you know, necessarily evil uh, right off the bat and that Cordelia is necessarily good. So then what, uh, you know, what we should be prompted to ask is when in the play do we discover for a fact, uh, or not for a fact, when in the play do we believe that we have discovered, oh, now I can really see, you know, how, how, how things have shifted and now I really see that, wow, those two characters are really evil and now I really see that Cordelia actually meant well all along. And the reason I think that we deny those things is because we want to believe that right from the start, right when we were reading, we knew all along that Cordelia was good and that Regan and Goneril were evil. But I don't think that that's very clear. And one way that this is all, this kind of reading is all, like, uh, is imposed on us, you know, is virtually any uh, production of King Lear that you see I mean, you'll notice right away, uh, this is quite common, is that the whoever is cast to play Cordelia is always very attractive. Um, and then whoever's cast to play like Regan and Goneril are usually, you know, for the most part, sort of older and, you know, less attractive. I mean, let's just put it that way. But that in itself is already, I think, imposing sort of a bias of hindsight and uh, um, because it does not allow the reader to discover for him or herself when it is that these kind of um, uh, these, uh, when it is that they are aware or when it is that they believe uh, they have figured out uh, where the kind of moral center of this play is. And, um, you know, I, I think it's an exercise uh, worth doing and worth carrying out because it sort of makes us more uh, perceptive to the horror of tragedy, which has something to do with allowing the world to unfold right before our very eyes and not knowing what's going to come next. And how do we decide sort of on the fly how to judge people, how to judge the world, 
um, you know, these are moral questions. Um, th- those are the kinds of questions I think that uh, Shakespearean tragedy ought to elicit um, in uh, readers. Yeah, no, I, I wonder, I mean, it seems to me that the, the mousetrap from Hamlet is actually quite instructive in this uh, instance because Hamlet kind of goes into it with his conclusion already written. Um, you know, mm. so when the king stands up and he sees it as confirmation of his guilt, that's actually an instance of what we would call now confirmation bias. But in a way, what you're saying is that uh, many different theoretical approaches have been instances of right. confirmation bias, sure. where the conclusion yes. is already written before you come to the text. Um, and when it comes to Shakespearean tragedy, we all have a little bit of this because we know what... It, it, sure. I mean, I've said somewhere before, uh, there's no such thing as a Shakespearean spoiler, right? We all, you know, right. We, yes, we exactly. All, yes. We all already know the plots of all the plays. Sure. And, that... and, and, the, and the play is called The Tragedy of Hamlet. Uh, the tragedy <laughs> yeah. of, I mean, so in, in a sense, yeah, you're already bringing sort of a foreknowledge of, oh, I know how this is going to end, yeah, uh, to the play before actually seeing the play. Now, that's interesting, Nima, that you say uh, this uh, example of confirmation bias. Yes, in a sense, uh I mean, I would agree with you. You know, I'll take the ghost word for a thousand pound. It does seem like. But but do you find it? I mean, and I'm curious what you think here, Nima. Like, do you find it? The fact that he never acts on that knowledge, like, does that, it almost negates. I mean, it's a bias in thought, but it, uh, it never actually plays out in any meaningful way well, yes. in the real world. I mean, yeah. my, my view on Hamlet, um, as, I've, as I've said uh, in one of my books, is that I, um, in, I, I say this in Shakespeare in Cognition, um, it, it seems to me that Hamlet, because he's training to be a lawyer, don't forget, tries yes. to eliminate intuition from his thinking. He tries to make everything rational to the point where he's almost trying to um, counteract what you would do, what one would naturally do, you know, what most right. people would do. With Yes, you have this intuition and then you act on it. Whereas he is trying to be almost the perfect lawyer and trying to think through reason alone uh, he fails many times uh in the course of that and uh i mean you get many different moments where he then rebukes himself in his soliloquies where you actually see him trying to work out the struggle between the the intuition and the reasoning um but yeah that that is essentially he almost kind of checks his natural instincts um by trying to insist on this right ra- you know the kind of pipe dream of a pure rationalism um, mm-hmm. which, which which he fails. I mean, that, that's my take on Hamlet. Um, at this point, uh, Amir, I will uh, ask you my uh, the final question, I think, which is sure. what developments would you like to see in Shakespeare scholarship and criticism over the next few years? What I would like to see, I think, in Shakespeare studies and what I was, and what is kind of, yeah, part of my ambition with counterfactual thinking is that I would like to see, I would like to see the text lead Um, to lead the discussion, and I would like to see the text lead, um, I I, I would like to see kind of a a faith in the idea that however it is we talk about meaning, or however meaning is mined from Shakespeare in his text, uh, that that meaning is sort of internal uh, to to the text themselves. Um, Whereas, you know, like, um, it seems to me what what's been going on in Shakespeare studies for yeah, the last 20, 30 years and probably what will continue on for the next conceivable future is that Shakespeare is, uh, 
in order for Shakespeare to mean, he has to kind of footnote um, discussions going on sort of sort of elsewhere, you know. And and I think like, you know, like just from my vantage point, it seems like yeah, like cognitive science and maybe even um, you know eco criticism. Uh, in order for Shakespeare to mean or to be relevant, he is now going to have to footnote discussions that are happening in those sort of discourse communities. And I'm not saying that obviously, you know, there's lots of room for. Um, you know, those are all obviously very interesting sort of avenues uh, to explore. But it does, to my mind, it creates kind of a chicken or the egg scenario. You know, like, uh, is it is it because we've read, you know, this stuff on, you know, eco-criticism or cognitive science? Um, did, did we – was it Shakespeare that allowed us to articulate those things in the first place? Or does Shakespeare only mean because those things which have been articulated elsewhere – we suddenly find, you know, in Shakespeare. Um, so kind of, you know, and, and I think there's no real, and I think actually, no, I think the real answer to that is like, um, like we know that, uh, you know, this is the idea. Everybody, you know, if a Marxist goes and he reads Shakespeare, he just, he concludes uh, inevitably, oh, Shakespeare was a Marxist. Well, why? Because once you've been trained to see uh, class and property uh, and then you go to Shakespeare, oh, suddenly it's everywhere. I mean, but it's the same thing with like um, you know if you want to do uh, a critique of uh, uh, you know race you know uh, suddenly if you want to, if you have a sort of you know a, a very interesting obviously discussion about race and uh, identity politics happening somewhere else and then of course you bring all of that apparatus to Shakespeare yes of course you will find it everywhere I mean if if that's uh, what you're set out to look for it's going to be there I mean I think Harold Bloom said it best he said you know you take any theory of the human and Shakespeare will light it up I mean this is the, the world and the universe that he's given us, everything that is possibly human is in Shakespeare. So I guess, you know, moving forward, I just want, it seems almost like a knee jerk kind of, um, I don't know how to talk about this text. So let me just get this theory or this interesting discussion or what that's happening somewhere else. And let me just apply it to Shakespeare. And that kind of quells my anxiety of why Shakespeare ought to mean in the first place. Look, Shakespeare means because he's showing us these things that are happening somewhere else. And I think that's a bit, um, you know, that, that is something I think that I would like to see kind of change. And of course, counterfactual thinking is an invitation uh, to follow a type of, you know, very simple methodology. Anybody can pose a what if question, um, you know, that obviously has to have some textual justification to it. But by posing that question, you are forced to deal with the text itself. I mean, you are forced to make a subjective response to the text based on how you perceive characters. Um, you're supposed, you, you, the first thing that is of paramount importance is to sort of test your own intuitions, test your own biases, test your own judgments. Um, and then from there, you know, maybe Shakespeare has allowed you to kind of um, realize uh, some of these biases in, in, in whatever way that he does. Uh, and then after that, you know, maybe the sky's the limit. And of course, then, then, then you can sort of pursue all these other avenues of knowledge, which, of course, are interesting in themselves. But too often, I think, lead the discussion in talking about plays and in Shakespeare. And the reason that they lead the discussion is because we have this sort of anxiety about how Shakespeare can mean at all in the first place or say anything that is objectively uh, T, capital T, truth. I mean, just just, just in the closing here, Amir, uh, yes. in listening to you talk about the various different uh, approaches to uh, Shakespeare essentially just seeing themselves reflected back at them, 
Uh, <clears throat> it's often occurred to me that, that Shakespeare's, you know, for literary criticism has acted as a kind of, uh, you know, a Rosarch uh, test, you know, where right. you know, where somebody holds up that pattern and one person sees a butterfly and somebody else sees yes. a bat. Or, um, that's yes, a famous yes. example. Sort of like, uh, a, like a stomping ground, right, yeah, for all um, of these yeah, yeah. I, I just wondered, I mean, do you think that there's some particular quality that Shakespeare has that allows people to do that? Or can you do it with any text? Could I pick up, a, could I do exactly the same thing with a Johnson play or a Batman comic? That, I guess that would be my question. Or is there something about Shakespeare himself that allows us to, that allows him to be used in all of these different ways? I guess that's the. I, I realize it's a big question, but it's just a thought that occurred to me. No, I, I actually uh, I've given some thought to this, and I mean I don't deal with it in great detail in my book, but I do kind of, you know, say that Shakespeare, for whatever reason, has this kind of is in 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 a sense in a privileged position in our imaginations uh, and you know in Western literature and in Western culture simply because he's given us so many plays. I mean you know, 37, um, sort of, uh, with an asterisk, but, uh, 37 plays, uh, which ha- have explored so many different aspects of, you know, I guess you could call to put it in a cliche way, the human condition or whatever that you cannot, um, nowhere in any of those plays, like it, it's impossible to, you cannot mine out sort of any intention that Shakespeare himself may have had, or you cannot mine out any kind of, um, you know, you almost can't mine out any sort of subjectivity on Shakespeare's part alone. And it is f- further to that. We know very little, of course, of what Shakespeare himself actually thought. Uh, you know, he never wrote philosophical treatises or anything like that. But those are sort of historical anomalies or contingencies that work in our favor uh, when it comes to Shakespeare. It's because we have this kind of almost disinterested uh, universe of texts and words where everything um, can be considered significant, and just because of that, nothing can be significant. So, yes, we can make of Shakespeare what it is that we want to make, and I think that's kind of, um, yeah, that is to his great credit, and uh, I, I do think that, that that Shakespeare is sort of, um, it, it, it cannot necessarily be done with, with, with other authors. Well, Amir Khan, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. It's my pleasure, Nima. <laughs>